We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Hmm, the dignity of man. What has happened to the two political parties? Donald Trump has risen, and there is a profound identity crisis within the Democratic Party. And I believe this is a beginning of a struggle for the soul of the Democratic Party. The working class, which for decades was assumed to be the base of the strength of the Democratic Party, is now rather alienated from the party, largely by decisions made from within the Democratic Party. Many are no longer buying what the party, formerly known as the Party of the People, is now trying to sell. They're just not buying it. Is this Reagan Democrats redux? Why is this happening? Our guest today uh, on Keeping Democracy Alive is Thomas Frank, author of the widely acclaimed analysis of the Republican Party called What's the Matter with Kansas, which came out in 2004. He has a new book called Listen, Liberal, or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People. In it, he provides great detail of how, why, and when the Democratic Party abandoned its core principles and betrayed its constituency. There's much new information on how and why the Democratic Party lost its way and what it will take for them to find their way back. Thomas Frank argues that, quote, Democrats have essentially become the party of mass inequality. I've got to read that again. Democrats have essentially become the party of mass inequality. That is rather surprising. The book shows how Democrats may have unwittingly helped create the political despair and anger at the core of today's right-wing populist insurgency. Thomas Frank, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Hey, how are you? Before seeing your new book, I've been saying that with the takeover of the Democratic Party by the Democratic Leadership Council under the Clintons in the 90s, the party became more caterers to the rich and powerful than anything else. Now I see my understanding of when it started is, is wrong. I love learning new things. Please take a bit of time and tell us what the transformation was, how, why, and when this historic transformation of the Democratic Party began. Well, I wouldn't say you were wrong. The Democratic Leadership Council and the Clintons are, um, you know, uh, the... I think the the most important chapter in the takeover of the Democratic Party, but um, it, it did start before that. So the I mean, in the aftermath of 1968, you know, with the riots in Chicago and the, the Democratic Party basically coming apart over the issue of the Vietnam War, um, 
the Democrats set out to sort of reimagine their party. And one of the things they did, it was called the McGovern Commission. Uh, George McGovern was the chairman of it. Great old man. Uh, they, they reformed the Democratic Party's nominated, presidential nominating process. Uh, this is where uh, primaries come from. Before 72, there, were, there weren't that many primaries. There were only a handful. And after 72, it was basically all primaries. And that's how, that's how, you, that's how they chose their presidential candidate. One of the, but they did a lot of other things as well the uh, McGovern Commission, and one of the things they did was essentially to remove organized labor from its structural position within the Democratic Party. Why would they do that? What kind of thinking would lead them to to chase out their base? It doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? I mean, uh, because labor is, well, it was was, was hugely important back then in the the 70s, was a much bigger and more powerful player in American life then than it is today. Um, and also labor funds them. This is, this is uh, uh, even more so back then. That's, that's who pays for the Democratic Party, you know. Uh, yeah. But they did it because of, uh, you know, uh, th- they thought they could see a realignment coming, and it was going to, you know, they were going to reach out to uh, new groups. And in particular, they, labor had been uh, pretty bad on Vietnam War issues. True. Um, that, you know, a lot of blue-collar workers supported John, President Johnson on the Vietnam War, and uh, the, the sort of the people that ran the Democratic Party decided that was, that's not who they wanted to be anymore. Uh, they wanted to be a party of the sort of enlightened, uh, white-collar, affluent class, and especially of that class's, uh, what you might call its junior wing, the, the kids who are coming up in the fancy colleges. Uh, and they they said this. They were very open about this. This wasn't a secret or anything. And that's that's the direction they wanted to go in, and that's the direction they did go in. Yes. What's amazing is that uh, labor has basically accepted this uh, for years. I mean, they say they 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 moan about it, they complain about it, but uh, you know, being assigned to the back seat hmm. of the party where they you know what they want never happens. You know this, right? Yeah. I mean, in Democratic Party politics, that's just the way it works. These guys are the junior partners. Interesting. That, that, even that is not, I mean, it's, it's much worse than that. They get, they get nothing, basically. But they are expected to empty their treasuries every four years and, uh, you know, help hmm. out the Democratic candidate in any way possible. Uh, but, that, yeah, that started in the early 70s. But what you mentioned, the you know, Democratic Leadership Council and the Clintons, uh, is, is, the, is the really critical chapter of it, because that's when... Um, that's when this philosophy actually uh, takes over um, the, the party and takes over the White House. Yeah, it certainly did in the 1990s, and, and what a price we're paying. And interesting, you know, hearing about, you know, kind of shuffling the uh, the labor unions off to the, to the back seat uh, and yet expecting them to hand over their treasury, I can think of uh, the current, Democratic Party, what's going on with that. And, you know, let's face it, uh, progressives have been a significant part of the base of the Democratic Party. And the likely standard bearer, Hillary Clinton, is not liberal at all. I mean, she's just not. And yet, somehow they have this full expectation that the party base will once again empty its treasury and get enthusiastic even though the party has really turned their back, I think, on, on the progressive base. I mean, this is certainly not the party of FDR. Uh, and yeah. Yeah, speaking of FDR, I, I got to ask, 
we've known for a long time the Republicans have done everything they can to destroy the New Deal. But what about the Democratic Party and FDR? Well, the Democrats are the they're the ones that did the most. This is, I mean, <clears throat> I'm talking about the Clinton administration here, but um, th- so to th- th- take a step back to the 70s and the 80s that we were talking about before, sure, there was this whole debate that was going on I- within the Democratic Party in their magazines, among their intellectuals, among the office holders in the Democratic Party about what they needed to do differently. This is all through the 70s, all through the 80s. And they, they argued about everything. But all the different factions agreed on one thing, and that was that they could no longer be the party of the New Deal. Okay, This is in the 70s and the 80s. They all say this. You go back and read their manifestos and their magazines and their, you know, uh, all the different reform factions in the Democratic Party are saying this. It can't, and it, this is both left and right. You, they can't be the party of the New Deal any longer. They can't be the party of the working class. But the guy that really achieves that is Bill Clinton. Um, you know, this is you know he he uh, uh, he did the opposite of what Roosevelt did in so many situations. I mean, uh, most importantly, on um, you know on bank deregulation. You know, bank yeah. deregulation is what the Clinton administration was all about. This was uh, absolutely critical to them. Uh, not just bank; they did other favors for Wall Street too. You know, the the bailout of Mexico, hmm. uh, which was a sort of backdoor bailout to Wall Street, because Wall Street had been a lot of the um, Hedge funds and investment firms had been um, speculating in a very particular Mexican uh, <clears throat> debt instrument, shall we say? Right. That was really, really, <clears throat> excuse me, that was really wobbly. And Clinton rode to the rescue and made sure that all their all their bets paid off. You know, I mean, the Clinton administration bailed out a hedge fund. I don't know if you remember this. There was a hedge fund called Long Term Capital Management. They thought it was too big to fail. Nah. Yeah, they bailed out a hedge fund for Pete's sake. And this is, you know, he reappointed Alan Greenspan twice. Uh, uh, And then at the very end of his administration, uh, they got Glass-Steagall, the Glass-Steagall Act, which was, you know, uh, uh, one of the achievements of the 1930s. They got that repealed. But there are a bunch of other New Deal things. I mean, uh, welfare reform. That was directly taking on uh, a part part of the New Deal. Uh, Welfare was a a program from 1935. And they were... You know, they basically deleted it. It is gone now. It's something that you, you know, uh, it's been whatever uh, whatever uh, duties still remain on that front have been handed over to the states to deal with as they see fit. Um, and he also, uh, Clinton really injured organized labor. He really uh, stomped on these guys with the uh, with NAFTA and, and all oh, the various yeah. trade deals. I mean, these things weren't just a way of, I mean, uh, labor was against them. And so when he uh, he got them passed, this was supposed to be very brave because he had stood up to his uh, party's biggest constituency. But actually, he did more than stand up to them. He actually he actually was uh, conniving in their destruction, you know, in the destruction of of organized labor's economic power. And that's a crazy thing, you know. You think about that. a Democrat did that. You know, NAFTA has been massively harmful. This is, you know, this is the neutron bomb dropped on American labor. Uh, but not just NAFTA. There are so many of the trade deals in those days, and they all had the same effect. You know, they're massively destructive to working-class people. Absolutely amazing. It must have been 
I can't imagine doing the research and, and finding this stuff. You know, the whole... Oh, you, it's, that's another story. You know how I did it? Do tell. It, so if you... You know, the, there's so much Clinton hate literature out there. You know, the Republicans hated him as much or more than they do Obama. I mean, they accused him of crazy things. And they wrote all these kind of insane books about him. So what I decided I would do is I would ignore all that, and I would only read the Clinton love literature, <laughs> you know, the biographies of him where he's supposed to be a great man. And the, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of official, the, the works of, his, of him and his friends, you know, memoirs of his administration. So everything I wrote about came from books that really like Bill Clinton, from authors who admire Bill Clinton. So that's all of my sources are those. That is absolutely amazing. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is the author of the uh, very, very interesting educational new book. Uh, his name is Thomas Frank. The book is Listen Liberal, or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People. I think uh, we are, and as a Democrat myself, former 14-year uh, state senator, uh, we're paying a price for it. I, I don't like what's happened to the Democratic Party. I, uh, and I'm reminded of the, uh, the book uh, March of Folly by Barbara Tuckman, where there's a clearly bad path to take and a much better path to take known at the time, and the powers that be knowingly choose the destructive path. And it just is amazing to me. Bill Clinton, you know, people seem to like his personality. I don't know what it is. How much harm do you think he is responsible? How much do you think he contributed to the now widespread image that Democrats no longer serve average people? Well... People still like Bill Clinton as an individual. Yes. As you mentioned, he has this sort of legendary personal charm. Yes, indeed. And I've never met Bill Clinton in person, yeah. but uh, I, uh, I mean, uh, so I'll, I'll give you my idea of it. I, I once went to his presidential library, just two years ago, I went to his presidential library down in um, Arkansas. And I took the tour where you it's guided by Clinton himself. You know, you listen to the recording, and he explains what oh, everything right. is in the different um, cases, you know. And uh, he's so charming. And just listening to his voice, yeah. he's so intelligent and so charming and witty and clever that even me, and I'm not a, I'm not a fan of Bill Clinton, but even me at the end of it, I was like, wow, what a great man. <laughs> why, why can't he be president again? Oh, I know. And I mean, even I was falling for this spell. But you say, well, how much is he responsible for what's happened? He's enormously responsible. He got um, things done that Republicans had wanted for decades, nah. but that Republicans could not get done. He got them done. Bank deregulation. They even his uh, his people boasted about this after one of the early. There was, by the way, many uh, stages of bank deregulation in the 1990s. It wasn't all uh, just the repeal of Glass Steagall. It, it happened in in a, a series of stages. And after the first one, it was something called the Regal the Regal Neal Act. Uh, mm -hmm. You don't need to know this for the test. But <laughs> the Regal Neal Act. After in '94, they got this passed. Uh, it uh, deregulated interstate banking. Uh, and by the way, contributed directly to the uh, housing bubble and the financial crisis a few years later. But that's a different story. After they did it, after they got this done, his aides uh, wrote a memo 
where they said, you know, we just got something done that Reagan couldn't. Hmm. He did what Reagan couldn't. Wow. And as far as I'm concerned, that could be the whole motto for the Clinton administration, that bank deregulation is something that the Republicans could not get done. NAFTA, we know they couldn't get it done. Uh, NAFTA was negotiated by the Bush administration, but they couldn't get it through Congress because Congress was controlled, of course, by Democrats, as it always used to be in those days. You Maybe you remember. I do remember. <laughs> a very different kind of Democrat. Oh, my. Uh, Bill Clinton got it done. He got it passed. Welfare reform. Oh. Republicans could, could never have done that on their own. Absolutely. It's a Democrat it's the, to do these kind of things. And you want to know what the worst one? The worst one never came to pass. And which was that? It was on the it was on the uh, it was on the agenda. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I don't. That's it, because it it was never made public at the time. Social Security privatization. Right. So, I had forgotten Bill Clinton was for that. He really wanted it. Oh my God. Uh, and uh, Gingrich did too. Who yes. was the Speaker of the House at the time. Yes. And we now know that uh, Clinton and Gingrich in 1997 had a series of secret meetings where they figured out how to do it. They were going to privatize Social Security. They had a plan. They had an agenda. They had a timetable all figured out. Uh, you know, Clinton would call for it. Uh, they'd set up a commission or two commissions or whatever. Uh, they, they, Gingrich had the votes. It would pass Congress. Clinton would sign it. They had it all set up. Clinton started the ball rolling uh, in his 1998 State of the Union address. Uh, they, you know, he was following their plan. Uh, he, he said he wanted to save Social Security first, which was their code phrase. Yeah, right, right, right. Privatizing right. it. Yes. And uh, the <laughs> next remember. day, the Monica Lewinsky scandal broke, and that was the end of it. <sighs> well, all Thank right. God, if you ask me. Yeah, really. Let's hear it from Monica Lewinsky, a hero. Yeah. My goodness. I... Uh, she's a hero. <laughs> it, this is just, you know, almost through the looking glass stuff. It's just so hard to believe. My no, but that's, there's no question that this happened. It's it is, there's no doubt about it. It's it's in the historical record. No, oh, I know it is. It's just tr- truth is always stranger than fiction. And I have to wonder. You know, it, it takes a great deal of money to run a political campaign. I remember talking about uh, McGovern, uh, the McGovern Commission, and back in '72. Uh, and I actually had the chance to become friends with George McGovern much later, and, and and he was so upset that the election cost twenty million dollars back then in yeah. nineteen seventy-two, and now twenty million, twenty million, <laughs> yeah, and now it's try try a billion, try fifty times as much. I know, and that's what it is now. And you know, there's this uh, search for money, and I I I. Can't, I'm just wondering, you know, just sort of uh, trying to figure this out. It must Maybe it took too much work to uh, please the labor unions, and it was so much easier to shift the focus and say, forget about the labor unions and forget about the uh, liberal causes. Let's just go to the already rich and powerful and serve them, and that's how we'll get enough money to campaign and to win elections. And I know a lot of Democrats who say, you know, we got to be realistic. It's all about raising money. What's your reaction to that? That's, yes. (laughs) There's a huge part of the story. Just And, uh, you know, but I don't know if that was foremost in, I mean, and by the way, George McGovern, you know, George McGovern is a very good man. Oh, wonderful man. Right place. Yes. But he bears a lot of responsibility for this because the system of primaries that he that he and his people set up uh, is one of the things that costs so much money. You know, you look at all the money Bernie Sanders has raised. Yeah. You know, and it's a heroic effort. 
that Amazing. he's done. Amazing. He's mounted. Yeah. I mean, heroic. Yes. And, uh, you know, we aren't even done with the primaries. <laughs> You know, if he was to get the nomination, he'd have to do it all over again. Uh, by but time he could. Five, you know. He could. <laughs> I, yeah. Oh, he could. That's right. He could. And, but, uh, you know, it's just, it must be, it must be exhausting. You just, you think about this and it, it boggles the mind. Well, it does. I remember being. Uh, yeah, it, that's the, the, the needs of money are, uh, are, the, are the other part of the other side of the coin. You know, when the Democratic Party decides we're not going to be the party of workers, we're going to be the party of this one faction of rich people. Yeah. So, of course, that's, that's somewhere in their thoughts. Weirdly, though, when they made this choice in the 70s, that is not what they were saying. They weren't really talking about that. So what was it then? That, that only became a problem later on. But it is funny how these things all go hand in hand. Uh, and that's, by the way, a, a huge part of the story that I decided to, I decided deliberately not to write about it in Listen Liberal uh, when the Democrats discovered fundraising and discovered, you know, that they could raise just as much as Republicans could, which was kind of revelation for them. This is in the late 80s that that happened. Uh, and it was, that was really, I mean, another part of the, the, the downfall of the left in this country. Uh, it's about money. And yeah. you, you talk about uh, uh, history a little bit. Uh, being in New Hampshire, you know, I, you get to meet all the presidential candidates. I, I, Bill Clinton was oh, an am- right. yes, of course. amazing campaigner. He would talk to you. I mean, there'd be a big crowd of people. And I remember him talking to me and my wife and as if there was nobody else in the room. Every other candidate was looking around constantly. Who should I be talking to? And he was right there. And then when I visited him in the White House, Bill Clinton, he remembered my name, which was amazing to me. I mean, what an incredible... That is amazing. It is amazing. And he didn't have, you know, staff people saying, you know, that's Bert Cohen. Uh, He he just remembered that. But going back a bit, in 1976, uh, I got to hear candidate Jimmy Carter speak in Keene, New Hampshire. And it was all just platitudes, meaningless, nothing, really. And after, after his speech, my hand was raised to ask him a question. He was smart enough to call on me, I have to say, because my question was, are you sure you're not a Republican? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, he, he was smart. Not to, he, he must have known, gotten a, a vibe. It, it was certainly a break from liberal tradition, Jimmy Carter was. Was he not? I mean, for, for what he's oh, done... No, he's... A, he's yes. He is an, he's a character in, in, in my story, but, uh, but it, it, you know, and, and uh, the things... And, and like you said, when he was first running for president, he was very mysterious. You know, which side yes. was he on? Was yes. he a liberal? Was he a conservative? Who was he? Uh, a lot of people really liked that ambiguity at the time. They thought it meant he was, hmm. um, you know, uh, genuine or authentic. Hmm. Um, but th- then, you know, Carter was a kind of very typical Democratic uh, technocrat, you know. Yes. Very uninspiring. Uh, he didn't think, you know, he, he didn't trust people who were inspiring, who were passionate. Hmm. He thought all the problems had to be hard. You know, he's very typical of the Democrats in a lot of ways. And he did some of the early deregulations. Um, he did some of the first uh, big tax cuts, even before Reagan. He did the first of the capital gains tax cuts. And uh, he also appointed Paul Volcker, who is uh, thought to be a good guy now for, for different reasons. But Volcker also, I mean, you talk about austerity. You know, one thing we've learned from the Obama years is how destructive austerity can be. Well, Carter was really into the idea of austerity, really into it. I mean, they raised interest rates to what? What was it? You, you remember? Oh. It was like 20%? Yeah. 
my first mortgage back then was twelve and a half percent. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was it was a crazy time. Yeah, uh, and they clubbed the economy down deliberately. Yeah, like what? What kind of president does that? <laughs> you know? Not not any Democrat that I was familiar with. And you know, I, I, it, it frankly isn't surprising that uh, Reagan beat him in 1980. And yeah. you cite throughout the book, uh, you cite some powerful leading Democrats of the last 40 years or so as having really exacerbated the problem the party now has with working people. I want to sh- throw out some names there. For one, I had never heard of Alfred Kahn. Who was he? Tell us about him. Well, if you think about it, if you go back and look at the at the at the history books, you'll remember this guy. He was Carter's main economic advisor, um, on and he was the sort of he was the architect of deregulation. They would call mm-hmm. him. So he like they deregulated the airlines. You might remember under Carter, oh, yes. it was a really big deal. Yeah, and he was. he was the one that figured it all out and worked it all out. They deregulated trucking. You know, same, right. same kind of thing. He was the kind of economic czar of the Carter years. And he, there's a, a, I mean, a, a, an extraordinary quotation in the book from him <clears throat> that I just found when I was you know, reading around here and there, um, where he says that, that it, he, he would be happy if organized labor would be worse off, if, if, if working class people did worse. It would, make, it would please him. And I was like, what? You know, how could a Democrat uh, say that? It just seems extraordinary. These are the people that put you in into power, you know. These are the people that your party is pledged to protect. But there it is. It's in black and white, and it's it's not ambiguous. He's quite upfront about it. It's so surprising. It just doesn't make any sense. It's so anti everything the Democratic Party has ever stood for. What about uh, to stand for? Correction, sir. Uh, true. Used to stand for the. Uh, the FDR Democratic Party that I have always yeah. loved and felt a part of. Uh, what about another name, Larry Summers? Yeah. Well, he appears throughout the book. Uh, you know, Larry Summers is fascinating to me because here's another um, economist, uh, uh, very, um, you know, prized, prized econ- you know, he's, he's a prestigious economist. He's at the top of the profession. Not only an economist, he was the president of Harvard for yes, a while. Yes. And Summers is is uh, uh, he typifies so much of what the Democratic Party is all about these days in my in my uh, in my estimation. Mm-hmm. You know, because he's uh, because of he is such a um, intellectual success story. You know, everybody uh, they think he's so brilliant, uh, he's so clever, he's so uh, creative. Uh, then he was president of Harvard. He was head of this, head of that. You know, Elite. he is the toast of his field. Yes, uh, and yet in policy terms, the man is a walking disaster. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is the guy who in the so in the um, he was secretary of the treasury yes. in the Clinton years. He had a number of positions in the Clinton years, but he was again uh, the architect of deregulation. This time, deregulation of the financial industry. Mm. Nice move, Larry. Sure, you know, really? <laughs> this is when they made um, uh, they, they he got several important pieces of legislation uh, through Congress. One of them was the repeal of Glass Steagall. Mm. Uh, the other was the uh, what they called the the Commodity Futures Modernization Act, 
which had something in it called the Enron loophole. Yeah. You get one guess what that allowed. <sighs> and uh, it also had something in it, well, it basically allowed credit default swaps to be traded without mm. any kind of mm. federal supervision. Wow. And, I mean, these, this, this, this measure is responsible for two of the biggest, you know, uh, bankruptcies in American history. <laughs> Enron and, well, I guess, did AIG actually declare bankruptcy? I don't know if they actually mm, did. I, I think they did not. I think they avoided it. I think you're right. Allowed in time. I think you're but right. This is a disaster. Okay. So then President Obama comes in, and who does he put in charge of the economy? The same guy. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's, it's <laughs> just amazing. Before we get on to Obama, I, one more name I got to throw out there: Arne Duncan. Who, who does? What does he? Uh... he this, is, this is Obama's Secretary of Education. Yes. And uh, what is what is distinct? And, and the Obama years have been uh, remarkably bad—a really bad time for public education in America. Yes, they have. But a great time for charter schools. You know, they dump all this money on charter schools. It's funny that that uh, it's not funny. It's not ironic. It's totally direct and straightforward that you've got this party, you know, we, we, we've been talking about how they abandoned workers, but we haven't talked about who they embraced instead. True. Which is a high-achieving, yes. white-collar professional class. The meritocracy. And, and what Democrats believe in instead of, they don't believe in organized labor anymore, but they do believe in education. Oh, do they believe in it. Yes. They, it's so important to them because, for obvious reasons, education is the cradle of the... Uh, you know, high-achieving, white-collar, professional class. Uh, everything in their lives is defined by how they did in school and how they did in graduate school. And so you've got you know, President Obama, who is a sort of charter member of this class or a mm-hmm. leading member of this, of this class, mm-hmm. um, and uh, encouraging everybody to go to school, do well in school. You know, how well you do in school determines how well you do in life. And by the way, Clinton said that. Too. They all Democrats always say this. And while Obama is president, you know, college tuition is going through the roof. Student debt is going through the roof. Um, and, you know, charter schools are taking off, but public schools in general are falling apart. So ironically, he, in his time as president, um, higher ed has become a, uh, basically a, uh, another plaything of the rich. Plaything of the rich, education. yes, oh, yeah, I should say, yes, and at the, the higher education, you know, most clearly, you know, I went to uh, graduate school. I, by the way, I'm a member of the class that I described. I went to graduate school at the University of Chicago. Uh-huh. It costs sixty grand a year to go there now. It's mm. insane. There's, yes, I mean, I I don't know if anybody. There's nobody I know who could afford that who could afford to send their children to a school that costs that much and pay the full freight i don't know of anybody that could not a single person and there's even i, I found it interesting the uh, uh the 529 funds that were set up i believe under uh, i'm not sure if it was obama or clinton which basically rewards wealthy people gives them a break at sending their kids to college it's it's just yeah. one thing. That's that's always their solution to the problem that I just described is tax cuts. That's always their solution. Or well, no, I'm sorry. They have one other solution. You know what it is? Student loans. Oh god. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they'll hand out student loans to everybody as much as you want. Yeah. At very you, high interest rates to, too. Try to get out of those somehow. You know, just try. Well, that's and one. It's like it's now. It is common to meet. Um, 
kids yes. coming out of college or graduate school who are $100,000 in debt yeah. is common. Uh, certainly, at the at the various Bernie Sanders events I was at, uh, he'd ask, you know, how many people in the audience have student debts and what their debt was, and so, so many hands got up. Like the lowest debt I heard was forty thousand. That's a significant amount. You know, it's funny. I went to college in the in the eighties, and uh, uh, you know, we people would complain about the tuition back then. When I graduated, I was seven thousand dollars in debt, mm. and I used to complain about that. Seven thousand dollars! Oh my god! <laughs> and it's still true. You remember people used to work their way through college? Do you remember that? I do. And it worked. You know, they <laughs> actually worked. Night job or something yeah. like that. It was thought to build character and make you a responsible person. There's no way. I mean, to, to work your way through college now, your 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 night job would have to be as like a you know derivatives trader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just absolutely insane. And the and the uh, interest rates that they pay, it's just unbelievable. So this is a central uh, focus of your book is, is you know, the idea of a meritocracy, which is embraced fully by the Democratic Party, kind of a bear hug with the idea of meritocracy. Uh, and as I understand it, and knowing a bit about American history, it is entirely consistent with the myth of rugged individualism, which was never reality. The Democrats in power are so distinct, uh, you know, from uh, the approach Franklin Roosevelt took in creating jobs. Today they say education is the answer. You say, uh, uh, Thomas Frank, the problem is not that we aren't smart enough. The problem is we don't have any power. What do you mean by That's that? That's right. It, exactly right. Well, You said it very well just now. Well, I'm just quoting you. <laughs> <laughs> And and I know I've known people who it is it is similar to the American tradition, but it's also different in an important respect. Okay, so the American the rugged individual tradition, which we usually associate with the Republicans. Yes, I think that phrase was either Herbert Hoover or Calvin Coolidge. One of those hmm. has made that up. That line about rugged individualism, rugged individualism, all that stuff applied to your work uh, on the job. And the old idea was that Americans would rise up through the social ranks uh, by dint of hard work at work, right? Right, you would, right you'd at work. Get a job somewhere, you'd do well at it, they'd promote you, yes. and you'd keep going up. Absolutely. Okay. The Democrats' uh, idea of meritocracy is slightly different. You do well in school, and you get all A's, and you get a gold star from your teacher, and mm -hmm. one day you get that big, fat acceptance letter from the college of your dreams. Mm -hmm. They always use that word, don't they? Mm -hmm. Dreams. Mm-hmm. And then you, 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 you rise through education. And what I learned in writing this book is that there are, there are two uh, hierarchies in American society. There's probably more than that, but there's two that matter for, uh, for our politics. One is the hierarchy of money, you know, uh, business. Yes. Um, you know, with the Koch brothers at its pinnacle. And the other is the hierarchy of status or hierarchy of merit, uh, and this is defined by education, and at the top of it are uh, the white-collar professional class. Uh, one of these hierarchies is Republican, and one of them is Democratic. Yes. One of them reads the Wall Street Journal, one of them reads the New York Times. No. <laughs> it's you know, it's, it, once you start thinking about it, it breaks down very easily. What's interesting, though, is that once upon a time, the Democrats weren't a party of 
the hierarchy at all. Right. They're, you know, they're the party of the the opposite. They're the party of the lowerarchy. You know, the 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 uh, the, the the people who were uh, who who weren't winners. Yes, and I'm thinking actually that uh, that's gone. That's completely gone. They're, the Democrats are the party of winners. It's just a different kind of winner than the Republican Party. Although the two the two the two hierarchies uh, mingle all the time, you know. So you t- you take a place like Wall Street, <clears throat> where you've got both of them. You know, you've got the uh, uh, the people who run hedge funds who usually have advanced degrees, often in mathematics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but who are you know card carrying members of the professional class and are beloved by Democrats. Yes. And then you've got the you know the rich people whose money they invest, who generally come from the business world. Ah. There's a lot of places where these two groups overlap. Boy, absolutely. And those are the places that the two parties tend to fight over the most. Uh, Big Pharma is another another example, or Silicon Valley. Um, these industries. That's where. <laughs> but uh, but you're, I mean, you're seeing some very alarming um, uh, indications coming out right now. I mean, did you see that thing where Charles Koch was talking about the Clintons? Yes. He's uh, he's like not he's he thinks they're not that bad. That is fascinating to me, and I was, it's extraordinary. And it's uh, amazing to me how Hillary Clinton, the subject had to come up, uh, has these secretive fundraisers where very wealthy, very powerful, very well-educated people come out and give her lots and lots of money, big checks. These are secretive things. You know, and, and it didn't used to be that way. It's like, as you say, you know, it's just two wings of the same bird somehow, the same uh, meritocracy. And I find it fascinating that... You know, in this meritocracy, which, again, seems to, you know, reminds me of rugged individualism, it's quite logical that people who are not doing well tend to blame themselves. Do you think this... That's America. Do you think this... We also... I mean, look, there's another thing, another wrench that's being thrown into the gears here, which is Trump. Yes. uh, Which is this kind of, you know, the the return of the repressed in some ways. Hmm. You know, these these angry, hard-done-by blue-collar workers who finally have, you know, the Democrats have treated them terribly for, for years, yes. decades, yes, and the Republicans, you know, say nice things to them but never do anything for them. I mean, they, you know, they, they do stuff, but it's all this culture wars, you know, mm-hmm. nonsense. Mm-hmm. And they continue, the, Demo- the Republicans continue along the same path, you know, more free trade deals, more tax cuts for the rich, you know. And now you've suddenly got this guy who promises to get their boss on the phone and humiliate their boss somehow. <laughs> have, you, wow. have you heard Trump's talk, Trump talking about this? Well, yeah, that's how he's going to stop this shipping jobs overseas. He's a man that I, I really dislike. Oh, yeah. I profoundly dislike this guy. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, all of a sudden, they've got a guy, they've got a, one of the presidential candidates who is uh, talking about one of their issues, you know. Well, uh, and and in a way where he seems to mean it, you know, Hillary has said the same thing about uh, about about trade, uh, but you know, with Hillary, we all know she doesn't mean it. No, <laughs> you know, it's very it's obvious. No question, she doesn't mean it. <laughs> they it's, think Trump does. They do think Trump does, and what I find uh, fascinating, and I do think, if Hillary is the nominee. I think Trump, with just his few words, will run circles around her. She won't have any idea how to to deal with that. But, you know, he says, he just keeps saying, win, win, win. And the people that used to be 
the part of the Democratic Party, the base of the Democratic Party, they haven't felt like winners in a long time. So he just says, we're going to win, we're going to win, we're going to win. I wonder about you know how this perceived elitism uh, may have contributed to the rise of Trumpism. You know, it's, it's, and this widespread hatred of things Washington, is it related to the meritocracy mindset of current Democrats and that Democrats have sort of helped create this stuff? No doubt about it. Of course they have. And this is a reaction against uh, years of, of, of Democratic betrayal and disappointment. Absolutely. Now, I should say that I think the Bernie Sanders phenomenon was, too. Uh, Don't it say was. was. It still is. I think, um, way of expressing it. Uh, I think the Trump phenomenon is, is really is tragic. You know, this is, this is, this is awful, what's, what's happening with him. Yeah. Um, I mean... It, well, what do I know? I'm, I'm yeah. not a Republican, so I, I don't really care that he's wrecked their party. I think that's <laughs> I think that's all for the good. <laughs> I think you. But probably I do right. think I think Hillary will beat him in the end because I mean, for just simple mathematical reasons, you can't run for president and go around insulting all of these different groups. True. Um, Mexicans, he, Muslims, women, for God's sakes! Oh, you know, this yeah. is this is insane. You can't uh, you can't do that. Um, I think. It, 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 at this point, all Hillary has to do is keep her mouth closed, and she'll win. <laughs> Could well be, but I don't want to depend on that. You know, you're right. He he insults everybody equally. I mean, just he doesn't respect anybody. It's it's quite impressive. And, and you point out that Trump is winning the votes of a lot of people who used to be Democrats. I I have my doubts that Hillary can can really win them back. It seems to me Bernie. I, I don't think she can. I don't think she can. But she'll she'll um, she'll win a lot of other. Well, we're going to find out. I mean, this is going to be a very uh, exciting roller coaster the next couple of months. Well, but part of getting back to the whole meritocracy thing, you know, I, I rely on trained professionals to be my doctors and my dentists and you know, an accountant, things like that. Of course, Trump to fly the airplane. Yeah. yeah to, so don't we need water is clean? Ooh. Yep. No, really. Don't, don't we need experts to run something as complex as government? What about FDR and experts? He had experts working uh, for him as well. And yet we have this, uh, you know, the, this anger at the meritocracy and the fact that Democrats have, have gone to uh, professionals and just letting the professional class run things. How do you resolve uh, that issue that, you know, we need people who know what the heck they're doing to run government and to set policy? Yeah, well, that's, you've put your finger on the one of the main you know, themes in, in, the, in the book, in Listen Liberal, and uh, which is that, you know, the, the Democrats have this philosophy of rule by the enlightened, you know, by the people with advanced degrees. Yes. And that's the, the class that they admire, that's the class that they come from, that's the class that is their A number one constituency. And, you know, I used to think, well, there's a good side to that, you know, let's say, okay, so they don't care about working class people, but at least they put smart people in positions of authority and they know how to run the government in Washington. In fact, I used to care about this so much, I wrote a whole book about it called The Wrecking Crew. And it was about, it was, you know, about the disasters of the George W. Bush administration. You know, and, uh, uh, you know, he put people like Michael Brown in charge of FEMA. Do you remember this? I mean, it was mm. this colossal disaster. Yeah, you know, incredible. putting hacks and cronies in Washington, running everything. And I thought, well, you know, the Democrats, Obama has his failings, but um, at least he's going to put smart people in charge. Right. And it didn't work out. I mean, the, on 
really important issues like Wall Street, yeah. what to do about the banks, they did. They just followed. They they continued what the Bush people were doing. There was no no difference. Now on other things there was more of a difference, but still, th- this has to be one of the greatest sort of meritoc. It, it's a I call it a meritocracy of failure. Hmm. You know how how can this happen? Um, and there are other examples of it. The Vietnam War. You remember the famous book by David Halberstam, the best and the brightest. Ah uh, yes. Were about all of these these you know, very intelligent people like Robert McNamara yes. running the Vietnam War in the way that you would run a corporation, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and, and, and how they didn't listen to outsiders, and they, they, they carried the nation into disaster. Yes. And, you know, Lord knows what they did to the Vietnamese. Yeah. And uh, so I, I started to have second thoughts about this whole idea of genius in government. And, uh, it, but then it occurred to me, there have been times when this philosophy worked, uh, the Roosevelt administration, yes. it did work. Yes. You know, the, the famous the the brain, brain trust, trust yeah. as they used to say back in those days. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, Roosevelt, was a, it was a highly successful administration. And so I was wondering, what is the difference between Roosevelt and Obama? I mean, there's lots of differences. Sure. But what's, what's the difference between the kind of people that advised Franklin Roosevelt and the kind of people that advised Obama? They're both uh, intelligent. Right, they're both oh, yeah. uh, you know capable people. Yes, uh, but you look at Obama's team, and uh, they're all from Harvard. They're not all, but very close, right. or something like half. Uh, the second, the school with the the second most represented school in his administration is Oxford. You know, in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because all these Rhodes scholars that he's got. Um, but isn't it about values host, too? Uh, you know, it's forever running stories about how impressive his inner circle of advisors are, you know, how wonderful it is. And they and, all have these advanced degrees. It's so impressive. Well, know, it's like, it, it makes me think... All this brain power. It makes me think about, you know, Hillary Clinton. Yes, she has lots of experience, but what about her values? What about her judgment? And I think that comes into it. And FDR clearly had his values very straight. And his brain trust uh, implemented his values. And, 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 you know, so it comes back yeah. down to that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And but they were also his brain trust came from all over the country. They uh, weren't all from one or two institutions. Interesting. You know, Roosevelt himself was a Harvard man, but the people right. he ran, the people who ran his government, came from all over the country, uh, from you know uh, schools that we think of as good schools, schools that we think of as lousy schools. Some of them didn't go to school at all. Mm. Harry Truman. Mm-hmm. Didn't go to college. Hmm. Um, he's the last U.S. president, by the way, that didn't go to college, and a Democrat. Um, Roosevelt's attorney general was a guy called, or one of his attorney generals was a guy called Robert Jackson. He put him on the Supreme Court. Uh, this guy was the lead prosecutor at Nuremberg. Oh, right. uh, Robert Jackson did not have a law degree. <laughs> you know, he passed the bar. He was allowed to practice, law, but he did not have a degree from a law school. And again, it's about of people in the Roosevelt administration like this that, that were not credentialed in the way that we expect everybody to be now. They came from all sorts of different walks of life. And it's about who they serve it's and what their values are. Culture, this East Coast meritocratic yes. monoculture. That's where all of Obama's advisors come from. 
If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Live, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today, Thomas Frank. His new book is Listen Liberal, or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People. Uh, he's uh, also famous for his uh, book from 2004, What's the Matter with Canvas? And regarding the Obama presidency, his they used the word hope quite a bit. Conventional wisdom is that his hands were tied, that he couldn't get much done because of the obstructionist Republicans, which seems pretty clearly true. But you challenge this conventional wisdom and argue that the economic inequality has gotten worse under his presidency, and not just because of the Republicans. This, of course, is counter to conventional wisdom. Uh, what, what's happened to economic equality uh, in the Obama administration? Well, of course, it's gotten much worse. You know, this is the, the recovery from the recession has been a time when people are just starting to realize that the working class in this country is, that things have changed in some permanent structural way for them. Yeah. Uh, and this is only starting to dawn on people right now. That's what's behind the Trump phenomenon. That's what's behind the Bernie Sanders phenomenon. Uh, people are starting to figure this out. Uh, and that is, yes, thanks to the Obama administration. And and you're exactly right that the conventional wisdom is that Obama wanted to do great things, but of course he couldn't because the Republicans wouldn't let him. And, uh, you know, that's it, it's fun to think that because, you know, we want to imagine that this man who was our great hero in 2008 uh, only failed because right. uh, people were mean to him. <laughs> but... It's just not that way. If you look at the if you look at the actual record, uh, the conclusion that you have to come to is that in those first few years of his administration, when everything was possible, when everything was on the table, Obama did what he wanted to do. He didn't do the things he did because his hands were forced. He did the things he wanted to do. Yeah. For example, we talked about Larry Summers before. Yeah. The Republicans did not make Obama choose Larry Summers. He did that on his own. Yeah. Or Tim Geithner. Yeah. uh, Or Eric Holder, who then, you know, failed to prosecute uh, any of the, uh, you know, elite Wall Street types. Which... These are all people that Obama put on the job and told them, you know, this is what I want to do. Yeah. There's there's countless examples of this. I mean, I I don't know how many I I pile up in the book. Hundreds? Dozens? Anyway. Yeah. but you, you know, look. Once the Republicans got control of Congress, yeah, they, it would it was very hard for him to get anything done. Uh, in fact, impossible for him to get anything done. Although he still wants to get the Trans-Pacific Partnership done. Yeah, I yeah. know. That's... Again, that's not that's not the Republicans. That's him. I know. He wants to get that through before he leaves office. And it's so appallingly bad, and it is absolutely his. And it's surpri- I think a lot of people are, are having real cognitive dissonance with that, that, huh, what, this is Obama pushing this? It just doesn't yeah, make well, sense. Obama is not a particularly liberal guy. No. He's liberal in the sense that he's from this, this class, <laughs> and he believes the things that his class believes. But, uh, I mean, I was just reading his interview in the New York Times uh, on Sunday, just a few days ago. And in it, the man made fun of people who want a defined benefit pension plan. He made fun of those people. Really? And why would the president do that? That's his own supporters. That's organized labor. Social Security is a defined benefit pension plan. I mean, why would you brush this off as, uh, you know, something that is that only soreheads and losers long for? This is this was once the bulwark of the American middle class. Obama is not who we think he is. No. 
He never said he was a liberal, but people people projected what they wanted to believe on him. And I believe that's what's happening with uh, so many of the Hillary Clinton supporters. I mean, there's so many different issues where she just is at great, deep variance with traditional democratic principles and values, and they just don't want to see it. Uh, how anybody can think she's a progressive or, you know, in the democratic tradition, it just, it boggles me. I have some uh, thoughts on that. Yes, please. I I went to a Hillary event uh, last year. This is before she was, um, Officially. Before she had uh, uh, entered the presidential race. Right. It was a Clinton Foundation event. I was fascinated, mm. like many people, fascinated by the Clinton Foundation. Mm-hmm. And so I went to her event. And, um, it was filled with people who not only think she's a progressive, who uh, regard her with this kind of cult-like yes, admiration. Absolutely, they think that she is like one of the most wonderful creatures that has ever trod the planet. Um, and uh, you know, I, I, I call it a kind of microclimate of virtue. All of these people that think of themselves as very good people, as like people of striking moral. Um, uh, well, rectitude, rectitude. Yeah. yes, <laughs> and they they look at Hillary Clinton as their as their sort of their leader, uh, the figure that they all want to be like. Um, she's the one that they admire the most. She's the center of their world. It is interesting, and I, I, I you know, as, as people have said, if if she were a man, you know, I I, have, I happen to think there'd be a lot of difference. And oh, now people will say, oh, I made a sexist. If she's a man, she'd be Bill Clinton. <laughs> and she has said she would give Bill Clinton a, a uh, prominent place in her administration. Hello, do we really want that again? It's a, I, it just is amazing to me. I just got to well, add. Most, most people remember Bill Clinton fondly. This yes, is something they do. that, that um, you know, that's that's uh, that's that was one of the mysteries that I tried to address. Why are people fond of Bill Clinton? And it's it's because of two things. One is. Uh, the uh, the economy did so well his last three years in office. They don't remember what it was that it was just a bubble. Yeah, I mean nobody remembers that because the bubble didn't burst until Bush was president. So it's possible to look at Bill Clinton and say those were good times. And the other thing is because of the impeachment, uh, sort of in a perverse way, that established yeah. him as you know a persecuted figure, as a martyr. Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose uh, I actually think that that one of the best things to happen to the Hillary Clinton campaign was the whole Benghazi hearing. It helped her tremendously in the same way, I think. That's right. I I just have to ask, the Democratic National Convention, uh, I think, will be about the soul of the Democratic Party. Could the rise of the Bernie Sanders phenomena indicate a change back to traditional Democratic Party principles and values? Are you optimistic at all on that? Well, it it seems like it because Bernie is a is a Roosevelt style figure. Absolutely, that's that's you know that's what he's deliberately trying to. Uh, that's what he's proposing. That's who he's imitating. That's what it's all about. Yep. However, Bernie is completely opposed by the machinery of the Democratic Party and by the office holders in the yes. Democratic Party. The Democratic Party does not want what he's selling. You and I might want it. We might vote for it, but the Democratic Party as an institution, does not want it. I mean, he wasn't even a Democrat until very right. recently here, you know, when he signed up in order to run in their primaries. Sure. Well, because he wasn't that kind of Democrat. He never has been. He's, <laughs> yeah. he's a yeah. traditional FDR kind of Democrat. And his life, you know, calling himself uh, other things, you know, a Democratic Socialist yeah. and Independent, 
there's a reason he did that. Uh, and I think it was a lot of what I'm talking about here, the, uh, the, his dissatisfaction with the Democratic Party. Yes, yes. So much to talk about and, and so much possibility that there still is. Fascinating new book. I urge everyone to uh, pick it up and read it. Listen, Liberal, or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People, Thomas Frank. Thanks so much for being with us and uh, you know, being part of uh, what we're all about, keeping democracy alive. Huh. Well, thank you for having me, Bert. All right, and we'll see if we can find our way back. Find your way back Find your way back